You're listening to Investigation Insiders by Integris Intelligence. Hello again, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Investigation Insiders. Uh, This is Farhad. Hope you are all well and safe. We have another great guest today, my longtime friend, Thomas Egan. How are you, Tom? Thanks, Farhad. It's great to see you again. I'm doing well. That's uh, fantastic. I I think a lot of people, uh, again, uh, that listen to the show probably uh, know who you are, but would you mind starting just by giving a little bit about your background? Sure. So um, I'm a 20-year veteran with the NYPD. Um, I've worked in corporate security, private investigations, healthcare security, law enforcement training. I just completed a doctorate program. It was the third degree I've received since I left the NYPD. I guess you could say I've been around the block. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think uh, I think everyone that knows you would agree with that. Um, and obviously, uh, well, I know this. Uh, Tom's really underselling it, but we'll we'll get into more of his background as we go through the show. Um, I'm gonna just. Uh, take a quick interlude on on the show uh, just to kind of give you a little bit more of a meaty description of how we know uh, each other. So, you know, Tom and I met shortly, like 2006, shortly after Tony Picciano and I started our first company. At that point, uh, Tom had been out of the NYPD for a couple of years and was the VP of security and investigations at a global firm based out of New York City. Um, And for context, I mean, at that point, we had a couple of clients and outside of our immediate circle, uh, we only knew a handful of people. So what I was doing every day uh, was calling. I spent hours and hours on the phone, sending emails, calling people like Tom each day to try to get a meeting to pitch our services. If you've ever done that sort of thing, uh, you know how much it means when someone actually takes your call and talks with you, regardless of whether there was an opportunity or not. And Tom always did that. Um, And I imagine it wasn't just for me, it was for others as well. And truthfully, sometimes, and Tom, you may not even know this, sometimes when I was just having a bad day, when no one was taking my calls or returning my uh, calls or emails, I would call folks like yourself and others because um, I knew you'd take the call. And just that little bit of talking to someone gave me the the motivation to get out again the next day. So, I mean, you know this, it meant a lot um, at that time and it still does today. So you would think that's the story, right? That's that, But that's not it. I mean, so you fast forward to 2008, we're starting to get into a really bad economy. Uh, right before the the crash and in fact tony and i were ready to call it quits we we were actually ready to shut the doors um and even though we were doing well it just wasn't enough we 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 were ready to call it quits and of course tom calls and and says hey you know what i might have an opportunity for you and anyway that opportunity came to fruition and truthfully that's what kept us going and I don't know that we would be where we are today had it not been for that. And so um, 
Tom, you know, I've talked about that with you privately. I've said it in sort of uh, small group settings, but I'm really grateful for the opportunity to kind of talk about that uh, in a more to a more wide audience. So as I've said many, many, many times, we are so grateful for for that opportunity, for your friendship since. And I just wanted to mention that uh, before we went on with the show. I appreciate that, Farhad. But the the reality is, is that, you know, I we developed that relationship because you were, you know, totally professional. You were honest. Um, it, you know, you were you had integrity, and and so many people that cold call you or call you to try to do business with your corporation. And you know, it was a big corporation. You know, they basically tell you anything they want you to hear. <laughs> They'll offer you cash, like do anything to get the business. Yeah. And you were just this calm you know, person who wasn't overselling, you just said, this is what we can do. And so when we needed that service, you were the first person I, I spoke to. And, uh, you know, and so you, you've always, uh, I've always lived very highly of you and of Anthony in it. And tr truly, if it, if it was just me, uh, that would have been the end of it. But now, you know, your company is big. Um, <laughs> you've had a couple of iterations, you've had a couple of partnerships, you're doing really, really well. And that's really because of you, not because of anything I did. Um, I was just one of the people who benefited from your professionalism and expertise. That, thank you, Tom. Um, and so I, I appreciate that, and I appreciate you letting me uh, take a short interlude. But um, so let's let's learn more about you. Um, so where'd you grow up, and how'd you become a police officer? So I was born in the Bronx, um, but I spent most of my formative years um, in upstate New York. Uh, my parents moved us up there for the school districts, right? But we also had a summer home in Rockaway Beach. And all of the meaningful friendships that I developed and that I still have today, I developed in Rockaway Beach. So um, after I graduated high school, I moved down there immediately. I was working full time down there. Um, and so uh, I met my wife um, a year after I moved down there. And we've been together ever since. Um, but you know, I really had didn't have a whole lot of direction out of high school. But my father said, you know, you should consider taking the police test, the NYPD test. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized, you know, this is probably something I could do. It'd probably be, you know, an interesting job to do. And so I did take the test. And you know, within a couple of years, I was on on the force. Um, and uh, you know, it turned out to be a really rewarding career. Sure. I, I, so, what what do you remember most about being a police officer? So. You know, you know, as as you we've touched upon how I've gotten three degrees since yep. I've left the NYPD. But as you get educated, you have a, a different view of things, right? I've got experience and I've got education now. So I look back on it, and and what I remember is, is that I had an inaccurate view of what police work was. Hmm. So I would have been classified as an officer who embraced the warrior ethos, right? I viewed myself as a crime fighter, you know, the service aspect of it, which is like 90% of it was not something that interested me because, you know, I was looking for something that was piqued my interest. I was looking for the action and very much an immature view. Right. So, um, but as I got older, that changed. And as I embraced the job and, and really sought to become as good as I could at it, uh, I changed, I changed my view of that. And I ended up taking the investigative track, uh, became a detective, um, and I investigated all manner of crimes, everything from petty larceny to, to homicide. Uh, but really, what the, the, the most fond memories that I have are the you know taking a case, 
um, for a serious crime and building the evidence, catching the offender, and you know seeing that that case through to the end uh, was very satisfying. And I have to tell you that I enjoyed being with the NYPD. Um, but I think one of the things that kind of separated me a little bit was that it was never really one of those things where I, you know, guys talk about it's a, it's a calling, you know, I, I never felt that way. For me, it was always a job and I wanted to do well at it and I wanted to um, be good at it and I wanted to succeed, but I, but I never really felt like it was, you know, you know, part of my soul, so to speak. I, it was just a job, a really good, rewarding job. Right. Um, so you, you spent a good, obviously, 20 years with the police department and a, a few years since then in the private sector. Right. So one thing being that, again, you're um, the chief of you know hospital police and director of security at Bellevue. What was the experience during the pandemic like and how does that compare to other things in your career? Well, the job of chief of hospital police or director of training is very different from being a detective, but there's a commonality, right? They, they're all problem solving jobs. Mm -hmm. In the NYPD, I conducted major investigations and involved other commands, sometimes other jurisdictions, but I was never too important to do the tasks that led to an amenable closing, right? You know, fingerprinting somebody, transporting them, doing any little task that it took to solve that case. So um, that's the way I think. So as chief of hospital police, I, you know, I'll sometimes take a post, um, relieve an officer who's on post who needs to take a personal. I'm not above that, um, standing on a post in the, you know, we had posts that were started because of the pandemic. And, and one of those posts was like a seven o'clock in the morning post. Right. And so I would come in, you know, at six o'clock in the morning and prep my day. And then at seven o'clock in the morning, I'd be standing on that post with a, with a hospital police raid jacket on because we were short staffed off some horses were out sick um and you know we we I, I wasn't afraid to just step up and do whatever it took to deal with the problems that we were encountering um so i kind of figured that uh if i was going to direct officers to stand on these posts in an environment that was potentially dangerous you know because of the pandemic at the beginning no one was really sure about mortality or how to treat it um you know, then I had to walk the talk. If I was asking them to stand on the post, I think it helped my credibility when I stood on that post as well. I mean, you know, in the beginning, you know, you were, we were all fighting for resources. We had to change our protocols to deal with the pandemic, you know, the social distancing aspect of it, everybody getting masks. Um, you know, one example of that is like, we, we, we discontinued in-person roll call. Uh, we made virtual roll calls, right? So we posted all the post assignments in the main hallway and, you know, the officers had to come in in the morning, get the post assignment, and they had to go face-to-face -face relief, essentially on their own, because, you know, you're 16 or 24 posts, you can't watch all of them at the same time. Um, and you had to rely on the integrity of the officers, um, because the pandemic just changed the way we had to do business. And for the most part, I think we were very successful at it. Um, I, you know, our audience loves stories. Uh, do you have one that you could share related to your time with the police since then that um, sort of uh, that's memorable to you? You know, I was thinking about that. And let me share the story about how we created the Hospital Police Academy, which is the training academy for all of the, um, the hospital police officers in New York City. Right. So. I joined Bellevue's Hospital Police in 2014, right? And toward the end of the year, 
my boss, Joe Sweeney, who's another retired detective from NYPD, who's currently at the hospital for special surgery, he starts that conversation with me about um, taking the training in-house for all of our officers because they were training at another agency, and that agency really couldn't tell them how to do our job because it wasn't the same job, right? So he had this idea, let's, let's take it in-house and start training the people ourselves. And I said, it's not like a good idea, but I don't know how we're going to do it because none of us have ever, you know, had a formal job training. You know, we were detective investigators. We didn't, I, I did some training, some brief training on how to do investigations with some of the officers and some of the community, but nothing, nothing as robust as a training academy. And he said, no, I'm, you know, he handed me this brochure from the state and he said, do me a favor, read this and tell me what you think. And so it was essentially a step-by-step process of how to create the academy. And I said, you know, I, I, it looks like something we could do. I said, but who, I don't know if we would have the time to do it, right? And I gave it back to him. He immediately handed it back to me and said, oh, that's great. I'm glad you agree. Let's put a plan together. And I was kind of sitting there stunned you know, because, you know, I've only been there at the time for like six months. And, you know, he had this idea, which was a pretty good idea, but I didn't think there was any way we could possibly, you know, that I could do it, right? So I said, all right, if this is what he wants me to do. And I started the step-by-step process in January that year. And by the fall, um, in September of that year, we took our first class in. Um, and it really turned out to be the best thing we did. And it is really our legacy here. Hmm. So, so the New York State requires a specific curr- curriculum to certify officers, right? There's a, there's at the time it was a 19 hour cor- course curriculum. Um, and that was great. It kind of taught you about the law and your responsibilities as a police officer and some of the techniques of, of law enforcement. But it didn't tell you anything about healthcare, right? It told you nothing about healthcare, about how to work in this environment. And there are a host of other regulatory bodies that dictate what we do. So um, I researched best practices in healthcare security, specifically around crisis intervention and de-escalation. You know, the ability to communicate effectively with people is pretty much the most important skill a law enforcement officer can have, right? So being able to communicate with agitated and distressed people in this environment is essential. So this was right after the um, President Obama's Task Force on 21st Century Policing released its report, and we kind of used that as a roadmap. Um, so it talked about, you know, police need de-escalation, police need to partner with the community, police need to recognize that, you know, the even the offenders we deal with, the idea of procedural justice is, you know, treat everybody fairly, recognize the, the human beings that you encounter as people. All of those things were uh, part of the, the plan that uh, President Obama's report issued right so we 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 also we 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 adopted that and we also embraced the idea of trauma-informed policing right so one of the areas that law enforcement is lacking in it not so much in training but in education is understanding the history of law enforcement in this country and it isn't pretty right so contemporary officers you know you, you you've had retired officers working for you i know you you deal with regular you know uh, active duty police officers all the time Generally speaking, we recognize that there is a history of policing that is racist in this country, but we don't want to be held accountable to that, right? We don't want to be the ones who have to pay the price for the past sins, right? So, um, but it isn't as easy for some people to to look at it that way or to accept that from us. Um, And, you know, I have an academic colleague at another university, Arthur Garrison, right? 
and he describes the disconnect between white Americans and black Americans and and they had to deal with the police like this. He says that white Americans are able to view the police and police encounters in the present tense. It's just an encounter that they are dealing with in that moment. But black Americans view it from, you know, the history of slavery, 400 years of slavery and 400 years of oppression, right? So you, you want to believe that slavery ended in 1865 and that was the end of it. But, you know, the history of policing uh, with black Americans is not great, you know? So you, you saw with the antebellum era where you had slave patrols, right? And that's well known. You had slave patrols and the history of the slave patrols. And then you also have, you know, the the lynchings in the Reconstructionist South, um, where over 2,000 uh, people were lynched by um, vigilante mobs for any of a number of offenses. And for, for black Americans at the time, it was, you know, anything to do with talking to white people, talking back to white people um, and things like that. And, uh, and so it's, e it's easy for us to say in this modern times to say, oh, you know, we just want to be treated the way we are now. But black Americans have a tough time recognizing that everything is different now because every once in a while something happens uh, that reminds them of our history, right? So and you, you, the Red Summer of 1919, where the returning World War I veterans who, you know, fought and died and, you know, some of them fought and died in World War I came back and expected to, to have equality, but instead, um, they were not given equality, they were not given jobs, and, you know, in a lot of places, they were um, attacked, right? And, you know, the Tulsa riots, which destroyed the Black Wall Street, you know, the Scottsboro Boys, as you go through our history, and this is in the last hundred years now, you can cite different eras where the Black Americans are treated completely differently. And that's what we miss as law enforcement, that we're not recognizing that there is a history here that it's not so easy to just say, oh, it's over, let's move on. Um, and, you know, Arthur Garrison says it's not easy for us to move on because we're still dealing with the repercussions of that. And we still, you know, from generations of generations of distrusting the police, mistrusting the police. And now you expect us to just forget about that during a police encounter. Well, it's not that simple. And I think if we could train that to, to our officers and recognize that there's this 400 year trauma that they're that that our black brothers and sisters are trying to deal with when we encounter them if we can do that um that will help us to communicate and get past some of the issues that we currently deal with right and that what we put did when our police academy was we put it we called it trauma-informed policing where we acknowledged the histories we accepted the stigma that's attached to policing um, with black Americans and, and to also to some extent the Latino Americans and really any um, minority group, right? And if we can get past that and acknowledge those things, it'll be easier for us to do our jobs and we'll be better at it. Hmm. And I think that's what's missing the most in, in police work is willingly acknowledging this, this history exists. No, I, I appreciate that, that insight. And um the uh it'll be interesting uh the feedback on on your take on that um so uh, i you know obviously you you guys are uh gathering from tom that um education has always uh been important and when we first met i th i think you had just finished your bachelor's degree and were working on you know a higher level education and 
obviously, uh, as we as you've alluded to, you you've um, gotten three doctorates since, which is really uh, pretty incredible. So, so why is learning and furthering your education always been so important to you? You know, so as my police career progressed, I knew the quality of positions that would be available to me when I left the NYPD would be impacted by my formal education. So I went back to college a couple of years before I retired, and I took one class a semester and it took me about seven years to finish. But, you know, just to backtrack one second, I had always planned, you know, in the, in the academy, police academy, when we, when we were graduating, we went around the room and talked about our plans. And my plan was to do 20 years in the NYPD retire and then do another 20 years outside of the NYPD. I had that plan from the start. And so as I got close to the end of my career, I said, you know, what's going to help me get this job right now? I worked in midtown Manhattan. And so, you know, I was, you know, working with corporations, um, big corporations that could potentially hire me. Um, and so I had a leg up by somebody who's on somebody who's working in the Bronx or Brooklyn. Right. But I also wanted to make my resume as attractive as possible. So I went back to school. Um, got my undergraduate degree, and then uh, I took a couple of years off. And when you met me, I had just started an MBA program. Mm -hmm. And uh, after I left Viacom, I got laid off from Viacom, I started my own security company. And I said, is, it, is an MBA more of a seller or would a criminal justice degree be more of something that would be um, advantageous as a private vendor? And I decided to, to pass on the MBA and go into the criminal justice degree, right? In hindsight, now the MBA probably would have been as good, if not better, because, you know, better understanding of business, right? But I went back and uh, did, did finish my criminal justice master's degree in about two years. But those degrees were both career inspired. But something that I figured out when I was doing my master's degree was when you were going in depth to the different aspects of the criminal justice system, the court system, the correction system, uh, juvenile justice, uh, uh, all of those aspects of the criminal justice system where you had to read research papers and do independent research on these things. I found I really enjoyed that, right? That self-guided learning, that self-guided, um, the self, that, that, that personal search for information, for data, I really enjoyed that. And so, I, I figured the master's degree was all I was ever going to do. I was interested in a PhD, but I, I didn't really feel like I should, I would uh, ever go and do it. And then when we started the academy, I started to, um, did a lot of research into best practices and did research on how to train police and research how to do it with a way that could connect with um, people, right? So, so one of the other aspects of training um, in police departments that I didn't really get into is the, when the police are trained, one of the training they seek is a bond between officers so they protect each other and they can rely on each other. And the way they do that is they basically teach the officers that they can only rely on each other, but that they can't really trust anybody in the public. They can't really trust um, anybody out there because they have to they have to take care of themselves. And the way it was explained to me was, and it was back in 1983, was that you know, you can't trust um, the DA's office because if the DA's office believes you've made a mistake, then they will try to prosecute you to make a name for themselves. You can't trust other lawyers because they're looking to sue you and make money. 
you can't trust reporters because they want to make a story about you and they will make you look bad in order to sell their newspapers because it sells newspapers. And, you know, so they basically systematically told you, you really can't trust anybody. So that part of the training where you're teaching young officers, they can't trust anybody they're going to encounter kind of puts a divide between them already. And so when I was forming the academy, I did a lot of research to how to avoid that. And so we took great pains to try to make sure that we did not build an else versus them mentality in the training. And so, but that research, trying to find the, that right way to train, that piqued my, my interest about doing research more formally. And I had done so much of it to form the academy. Um, it seemed like a natural fit to try to go for a PhD, but I still didn't do it at that time. It wasn't until I went to, um, I started teaching at uh, St. Joseph's University in Brooklyn. Um, we, we have an internship program here at Bellevue. Um, that's another thing, um, for hot is when, whenever I, um, take a job, I try to form, start an internship because when you get, you know, young adults, young, um, students in to try to, and you, and you introduce them to your environment, um, they learn and the officers take energy from those young people. I, I, even the most curmudgeonly officer, the most curmudgeonly person I've ever worked with have embraced these interns, these young kids coming in to learn, and it's always been very successful. So I had an internship pro pro program here that it started with um, another college, but it, it ended up being, we ended up doing it with St. Joseph's University. And from that connection, I ended up teaching as an adjunct instructor with St. Joseph's College and uh, well, St. Joseph's University now. And as I was being assigned classes to teach, there was a lot of reading and research in order to make sure that I had the necessary expertise to teach well. And that is what really like, piqued my interest. I was like, well, I'm doing all this research. Maybe I could channel it in a way that I could, you know, uh, do it more formally. And that's ultimately when I decided to go for the PhD. It, was, it wasn't so much um, career related. It was so much it was more of trying to be res a responsible instructor, responsible trainer. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's really interesting. And, and again, there's a lot of strategy in that, right? There's a lot of, there's a lot of thought that goes into the approach that you took. And I, I kind of feel like sometimes in the security industry, whether it's private security firms, whether it's investigative firms, whether it's in-house, whether it's hospitals, corporations, um, that many, not all, obviously, take don't take a strategic approach like uh, to training people, right? So a lot of times they fulfill what's required and, um, you know, not really, uh, or they, they have people take training on their own and essentially cover their costs on doing so. So what are your thoughts on, on that? And how do you think people should be thinking about training? That's a really good question. I think, <laughs> um, I think, as an instructor, here's what I've experienced, right? I go into a training program. I take that as not really a job and not really, um, what's the right way to say it, right? So there are a couple of different ways to look at teaching, right? So one of the more popular ways of teaching now is as a facilitator of learning, you have a responsibility to present, um, information to the student so and it's their responsibility to take it in and and get something from it right but i think when you're talking about young people especially whose brains are not fully developed you know and even our, our brains are not fully developed we're 25 26 years old right i said so so i have an obligation to present that material in a way that they can get information from it 
And so you got, say you have a textbook. Well, you better know the textbook. And when you get into a classroom, I feel like the best way to do to, to facilitate learning is to know that material, assess the most important points that you have in that material, and then present that in the classroom setting on top of the reading they have to do. And, uh, you know, you, I have a responsibility to do that. And if I have an experience in my career that relates to the material that I'm, that I'm uh, presenting, then that's a good way to pique their interest through a personal story that actually has, is, has a connection to the material, right? But what I find is teaching is, is um, even if you're a good talker, teaching is, you may not be a good teacher because teaching is, is, a, is a kind of like a, an art form, right? You have to go into it with that understanding that you have a responsibility to present information. And what I find with um, many instructors, both at the college level and here in you know, the training level, the law enforcement training level is, they get so wrapped up in their own stories that the stories end up not having anything to do with the material. And so they'll go into the classroom and talk, tell stories that they enjoy telling, but they're not really facilitating learning. It's not connected to the material. So they're not really helping the learning process, right? Um, and these are young people who need guidance on how to learn. But our instructors very often are not sharing the material they're supposed to share. They're telling stories from their experiences because the, it piques the interest of the student. And when you see their interest, that encourages you to tell those stories, but you're not helping them learn. And you've got to understand that you, what you're there to do is help them learn. And everything you do has to be related to that. Every part of the relationship between the student and the teacher has to be, I want to learn and I've got to help, I've got to help you learn in any way I can. Now, there is a responsibility on their side to do the reading or do the assignments or whatever and pay attention in class. But you have an obligation to present that material. And I find that many instructors don't, they deviate from the material. They, um, they don't really, they, they leave it all to the student to read and study on their own. And some students can do it, but many others can't. And I feel like that's a part that's, that's, uh, that's missing in, in a lot of the, 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 the teaching, the student-teacher relationship is that not accepting the responsibility that you, it's your obligation to present the material in a way that the student can learn it. And you got to sign reading. You've got to have interesting lectures that are on point. Relate your stories to those, to those lectures, to that lesson. And if you don't, you're not facilitating learning. And so you're not living up to your responsibility. Sure. So, I mean, from a, like, let's say like a head of corporate security or something like that somewhere, like, you know, again, we talked about, um, you know, training is a dynamic thing, right? So what's true today may not be true tomorrow, et cetera, et cetera, right? So like, I always feel like to understand what the needs are, you, you have to do risk assessments and, and a gap analysis of where, where you are and where you want to be. And, um, you know, before just diving into material, right? So can you, can you talk about like that process and in, in deciding what, training people receive yeah okay so you know that's another good question oh i've got to stop saying that right <laughs> um so let's start with the uh the risk assessment process 
Yeah. Um, how is it done? That itself has to be a formal process that is repeated. You can't wing it every time. So you gotta, what's, how is your risk assessment done? What's the process? What are we looking for? As you identify risks, um, assigning a level of priority to the, to, to each of them, right? So, so that you can address the high priority ones first um and in the in the proper order right refer each risk to the proper area for follow-up so you know if you're if you are say if you're doing a physical risk assessment there's a door that's broken the security department's not fixing that the facilities department is right. if you see an encounter between your security team or your uh your or police team that doesn't go well what is the problem what was the disconnect there and you know what type of training could help that person do better. Um, and if you've already given that training, why didn't it work? Assessing why it didn't work. Um, keeping yourself up on uh, current on the the issues that your agency, your facility, your organization are encountering so that you can best assess what training they need, what equipment they need, all that type of thing, right? You know, so, you know, we, we Right now, the world is obsessed with active shooter training, right? right? Everything's active shooter, active shooter, active shooter, because, you know, when, you know, five, six, ten people are killed in an instant, in a, in, a, in, a, in a single event, that terrifies everybody, and that brings their attention to the potential for this unique event to happen. But the reality is, is that's a, that's a very rare thing. I bet every organization in this city right now has had active shooter training. Um, and how to respond to someone who comes in and when they and just start shooting people. And that's a really rare thing. There are things that happen that are more dangerous in our work environments all the time, like safety issues or um, we're far more likely to be killed out, outside of work than we are in work, right? So what are we doing to address those things? There are things that, um, that make a work environment volatile that potentially leads to violence. What are we doing to alleviate those things? You know, you find that when you see these these um, uh, mass shootings that go on, right? That doesn't happen in New York City very often, a city of, of, of eight, nine million people. You know, we don't have mass shootings that, that equate to the amount of people that we have, you know? But we do have gang shootings, right? We do have gang, shoot, gang shootings, but, but we don't really address that very often. But when we talk about like mass shootings and active shooter training, we've all had that training, even though it's a very, very rare thing in general, but it's a very, very rare thing in New York City. And part of the reason why we don't have mass shootings in New York City is because, you know, people people end up shooting, um, shooting up their workplace, right? Generally speaking, they do that when they feel like they have no other alternative. But in a city like New York where the labor laws are so progressive that it's really hard to lose your job. Um, and so you start to lose your job. And when you do, it takes months, if not years. And then if you do lose your job, there's a, there's a variety of social services that help you, that can help you get on your feet or actually get some income. You know, some people are, are on suspension for a year, two years, then they go on social services and unemployment or whatever else they need. And so getting to the end of that rope where you don't feel you have any alternative is hard to do in a progressive city like, like New York. Um, but we're so obsessed with active shooter training 
and we spend so much time on it, it feels, it feels like it soothes a fear in our people. But is it something they really need? You know, we're, we're reacting to media headlines and not necessarily teaching them what they need to do. How about just teaching them how to manage encounters with people who are angry or agitated? You know, if, if how about our teaching our people how to manage somebody who's going to lose their job and deal, do it with some compassion, you know, um, in a way that doesn't make them feel like they're being insulted or attacked? You know, how about our, making sure that we have some sort of employee resources programs, people that we do feel are having difficulty with these changes at work or losing their job, that we can refer them to, to make sure that they never feel like they're at the end of their rope. You know, those are the types of things that I wonder, like, you know, we, we focus on something that's fear-based and we change our rules and we change our training, but is it the most effective use of our time? Uh, um, another another aspect of that is that, you know, when I was, a, they trained you how to be a police officer, right? But what you do is you never know how you're going to react when it hits the fan. You just won't know because you, you don't really know what it's like to have a gun pointed at you until it's pointed at you. Mm-hmm. And NYPD, they do their six months of training and then it's, a, you know, one day a year after that. And so that really can't prepare you for, you know, 10 years down the line. That, that, that academy training is in the back of your mind. So in order to get that person, get an officer to respond the way you want them to, you'd have to train much more than that. And so how much is active shooter training once every three years or four years actually helping our people other than in their psyche, right? Or is this the best use of our time? Are we training enough? Are we training on the things we need to train? Um, and how do we know that? You know, we're just following the lead of the industry Everybody's doing active shooter training, so that's what we're doing. But are we teaching people how to how to de-escalate, how to manage crises, how to manage people in crises, so that they can handle these things as a part of that training? I think that's where we mess up. Like you know, we need to recognize these things. Don't just do a checkbox where oh, we got to do active shooter training. So you do active shooter training, you show them a video, you show them a presentation, and you check we did it. Make that a part of a broader type of training. Make that a part of you know, the environmental control training, make that a part of, you know, workplace violence training. Because essentially an active shooter training, if it's in your business, is workplace violence. So how do you avoid getting to that position? How do you avoid having employees who are so disgruntled that they come back and shoot the place up? And if they do get disgruntled, how do you intervene with them before they get to the point where they feel like they have to shoot the place up? There is a disconnect between all of that. Um, we just focus on this checkbox. Oh, we did active shooter training check. And I don't know how helpful that really is. No, I, I mean, it's interesting. I was going to actually ask you um, for your suggestions on, um, uh, you know, if for, for those looking to either create or improve on their training program. But I, I think you just went through it. I, I think whether you're talking about active shooter or you're talking about PR or you're talking about patrol or whatever it is i mean these are all things that i mean this is the thought process that one would uh, go through uh, anything else you'd add to that as far as suggestions for anyone sort of looking to improve on or build their program their training program well if you're talking about reducing violence in your workplace whether it's employees screaming at each other or shooting each other it has to be a multi-disciplinary approach. Everyone has to be a part of it. 
you know um everyone has to be a part of the decision making process you have to have a group or a committee of people who come together when there's a risk who puts these policies in place and so you you get a group together you cover everything from what happens every day from employees arguing with us screaming at each other to um customers who are agitated um who you know who just basically are just difficult to deal with how you help how you help employees to deal with that volatility uh before and after the fact teach them how to manage these situations with some sort of crisis intervention de-escalation and safe conduct training teach them what workplace violence is and how to deal with it teach them what what a, what a how to manage threats of physical violence or threats of death how, train them how to respond to that and how you're going to support them when that happens train them on what they need to do if, if some sort of extreme violence comes to the workplace and make sure that the environment of the workplace is known to these to the to the people that work for you and that they is is the environment the structural environment the engineering of the place is helps them to handle any of these situations that they encounter start from the beginning cover the whole thing and make it a multidisciplinary approach so that everyone understands what you're doing and why you're doing it. And every year you've got to refresh that in their minds, not only because it's something that will slip away a little bit, but you're getting new, new employees in all the time. And if you're doing it right, you're staying on your, your training programs and researching them so that you're staying current with best practices, evidence-based practices, and making sure that it's comprehensive and handles the whole thing. You've got to stop treating training as if it's a checklist. Oh, we need workplace violence training, check. We need active shooter training, check. We need implicit bias training, check. Cultural competency, check. Make sure that there's some cohesion to it all so that it all feels like a an educational program and not just a bunch of check marks. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I, I think that's fantastic advice. Um, so the last question I have for you is, again, going back to the anecdotes, do you have um, something that you've been involved in uh, that really demonstrates the impact of teaching people? Well, I think with teaching, you have to make a connection to your students, right? But there has to be a structure to that teacher-learner relationship. And that structure has got to be more important than any friendship or any other personal connection that you make. Because if you don't have that structure, if you cross the line, so you're like socializing with your students um, outside of the school, now it's not, now you're blurring the lines between that structured student learner, uh, learner uh, teacher relationship. And you've got to make sure that that structure is always in place. Um, and I know plenty of, plenty of people that teach that, do, that socialize after the fact. It's, it's even more concerning than say supervisors who are going out and socializing with their with their the people that report to them all the time. Now there's nothing wrong with going out to dinner with your coworkers, the people that work for you, um, to develop relationships. But it can't be like a, a regular thing because it blurs the lines between the relationship that you have. And it's the same thing with teacher student relationships, right? So you've got to make sure you maintain that structure. And and I I think I said this earlier, but I think it's also very important that you recognize that you have a responsibility in that relationship. And whether you're a college instructor, a trainer at a, uh, a business, or being a supervisor makes you in many ways a mentor to the people who work for you. You've got to make sure 
that you recognize that responsibility that you have and you treat it like it's a responsibility. If you treat it like it's a responsibility, you'll always have that in imaging, that mindset where I'm going to help this person to improve, um, improve their learning, improve their performance, improve their um, humanity. Even. You know, this is a little bit dramatic, but, but you know what I mean? Like you've got to make sure that you have that in your mind, that you're responsible for young people, people that report to you, your responsibility to make sure that they're benefiting from that relationship. Sure, sure. And so, um, I, I mean, we've talked mainly from, you know, again, the company, the employer, the supervisor perspective. Um, I'd like to finish by uh, just asking your thoughts on, you know, for people that are listening, that are thinking about what, what should they be thinking about when they're t uh, thinking about organizations to join, training programs, certifications, for, I mean, uh, again, for law enforcement and private security professionals, what, 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 would you, what would you tell them to think about? Or even education, really? Um, well, from the education standpoint, I'm, well, obviously I'm a fan of, of formal <laughs> education, right? Um, yeah. And I think that what you're studying isn't as important as the fact that you're invested in your studies. So there's a lot of criticism about useless degrees and all that. But if you're, you know, say there's most of the criticism is around things like uh, uh, gender or racial studies, right? So, um, but I don't think that criticism is really fair. So if you if you're interested in 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 gender studies or racial studies, whatever you're interested, in, if you put your your energy, your heart, your soul, your mind into that learning, your your ability to learn whether or not you ever use that detailed content in your professional career is less important than the fact that you're willing to put the work in and learn because that's something that translates into every every business every organization everything that you do that ability to think critically and analytically to learn different perspectives and to put hard work in to improve yourself is something that translate across the board you know, I, I had people, I worked with people who had communication degrees that became police officers. I know people who got social work degrees became human resources people. I know two of the two of the most diligent people I've ever worked with have English degrees. Nice. And it sounded silly at the time you got an English degree, but the ability to communicate effectively in writing is something that can't be yep. can't be um, invaluable in any area, right? So right. if you're going to get an education, put your time and your effort into it. Don't just, you know, do the bare minimum to get the degree. Put the effort in and it counts. As far as organizations go, some of the organizations that are out there, and we're talking about line organizations, professional organizations, they are basically, they exist to introduce you to a vendor. You know, they're there to introduce you to vendors for the most part, or at least for a great part. And so if that's what you need, great. But if you're looking to improve yourself or to better your career, make sure you find the organizations that have good learning programs, good training programs. But keep in mind this. Whenever you're going to get trained on something, there is an investment you have to make, and it's either time or money or both. But if you are going to train in um, – if you're going to put in time in for training, if you're not spending time to do it or it's not costing you money, it's probably not worth it. So if you do like a project management course that takes like seven hours, 
You might learn something from it, but you're not going to be a project, project manager. If you join one of these line organizations, say like uh, uh, the uh, International Association of Healthcare Security and Safety, which is the main hospital security organization, healthcare security organization, they have great programs of training that you can take and become certified. The Association for Threat Assessment Professionals has unbelievable training and unbelievable research that you can read about, about how to manage those types of things. Those are just two organizations where if you join them, you're going to get an opportunity to learn something really good that's going to actually help your career. But they're not all like that. So be prepared. Do some research before you start spending your money on those things. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, fantastic advice. And, um, you know, just to kind of wrap up here, uh, Tom, I, I really appreciate your your thoughts and, and um, sharing that with our audience. I'm sure uh, there's going to be a lot of interest and feedback. And, um, you know, I just want to thank you again for joining me today and, you know, the years of friendship as well as, you know, the support you gave us early on and, you know, best wishes in the future. And, Look forward to staying connected. Thank you. Great. Thanks for thanks for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. It's good to hear from you. It's good to see you again. Absolutely. And and for everyone listening out there, please continue to uh, tune in, share, send your questions, comments, and till next time. Thank you. Don't forget to follow us. We are on LinkedIn and Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube.